But I've had people come up to me and they're like, Terry, I could never do what you did. I could never go through what you've gone through. And I usually, and I, I shouldn't do this, but I usually come back with something smart alecky like, yeah, you're right. Because you've already decided you're not going to do it. You already decided you couldn't be successful at it. And why would you start something going into it with the attitude that I'm not going to be successful? I could never do that. You don't know what you can do until you, you're put in that in that situation. So it always bothers me when people come up to me and tell me, you know, I could never do what you could. Well, you know what? I never thought I could do this either. But nine years, almost 10 years into this, I'm still here and I'm still doing it. Welcome to the Stuff Up Podcast, where we delve into different topics to learn more about ourselves and more about others. And on today's show, I welcome the amazing Terry Tucker, motivational speaker and author of, long title of the book, (laughs) Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. And thank you, Terry, for coming on and chatting with me. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. You're such an inspiration. And your book, Sustainable Excellence, do you just call it Sustainable Excellence or do you go into like the full title? Uh, it depends on what kind of mood I'm in. So yeah, Sustainable Excellence is just easier. <laughs> True. <laughs> I had to write the whole thing down. <laughs> you get writer's cramp. <laughs> <laughs> and I read your book and it, it's so inspiring and helpful, especially when you're in a negative place. and. <laughs> And you read somebody else encouraging you with your your tips, techniques, principles to leading a better life. And that's so helpful for us, especially where we're in such, you know, when you're in that that mode where your brain is like, I don't have anything to live for. Sometimes we go there. <laughs> and is that, do you find, do people tell you that like your book really helped them through some tough times? Yeah, I do. And it's always fun for me as an author because the each chapter is is a principle. So there's always one principle that resonates with somebody who reads it. And the principles are not in any order. You know, number one isn't any more important than number seven or anything like that. But but it's fun for me to just kind of sit back and say, oh, you know, this one is the one for me, or that one is the one that, you know, that I resonated with. So, so it's it's fun for me. But even as an author, I mean, there's one that resonates with me as well. So yeah, I think you write a book and that that was the first book that I've ever had published. And you get to a point where it's like, well, am I, is it good? Is it not so good? Is it okay? I mean, people write books about, you know, taking their dog for a walk and it's like, okay. And then, yeah, it might be an interesting book to you, but to most people, I don't think it would be. So you wonder, and I, shortly after it was published, I had an 87 year old man who bought the book, read it, and then reached out to me and said, hey, you know, if I would have had these principles when I was younger, I would have had a much better life. And so from my perspective as an author, it was like, well, yeah, maybe I'm onto something here. Maybe this is going to help people. Yeah, I agree. I'm in my 40s. And I'm thinking, reading something like this when I was younger would have helped me to, to see life in a different way. And so, yeah, I think like you're doing great work. Thank you. You're a motivational speaker. Do you do you get to speak? I guess it's hard with COVID now, but do you get to speak to to groups of people? Like what kind of topics do you mostly speak on? I usually talk about my story and, and you know my cancer story and how 
I've managed to make it. I mean, it's nine years, almost 10 years now. So I, in all honesty, I, I don't, I, I had my, my leg amputated last year. And so it's, it's much more difficult for me to get around and, and things like that. So in all honesty, I spend most of my time coming on podcasts and having nice people like you allow me to come on and tell my story that way and get it out to more people in that regard. Yeah, COVID is really kind of a disaster for people that, that wanted to speak. It's opening up a little bit more here in the United States. But again, it depends on what part of the country you're in. Right. Although I think a lot more people are just going to online, like you could present to a group <laughs> and have a Zoom party or something. I think, yeah, there's there's all these unique things that we're figuring out as we go. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't have to go to the office anymore. We don't have to have get a conference center and, and have a big presentation. I have a couple coming up early next year where I'm speaking to my former college and things like that. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. So for those who don't know, can you share a little bit about your... Because you've had different careers. (laughs) You have an amazing story. And then if you can talk a little bit about your cancer as well. Sure. So professionally, my first job out of college was with Wendy's International, the hamburger chain, in their marketing department. And I was fortunate to be with Wendy's kind of in the heyday of fast food. So I learned quite a bit. And then from there, I went to hospital administration and did new program development for a large hospital in Ohio. And then I did a a tremendous pivot and became a police officer. And I was an undercover narcotics investigator. I was on the SWAT team as a, a hostage negotiator and started my own school security consulting business. I was a girls high school basketball coach. As you mentioned, motivational speaker last year became an author, but for the last nine years, pretty much have been dealing with this rare form of cancer that started back in 2012 when I was a coach and had a callus that broke open on the bottom of my foot, right below my third toe. And being a coach, you're on your feet a lot. So when it initially happened, I didn't think much of it. But after it didn't heal for a couple of weeks, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. You know, no blood, no dark spots, nothing that gave either one of us concern, but he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I get a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having telling me what was going on, obviously, the more frightened I was becoming until he finally just laid it out. He said, Tara, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have a very rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And it has nothing to do with exposure to sunlight or anything like that, which most melanoma does. But I recommend you go to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas and be treated. And so I did. I had the bottom of my foot excised. I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed. And when I healed, I was put on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. The side effects of interferon for me were that I had flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. No. And that was not to cure me. That was just to keep the disease from coming back. In 2017, I ended up in the intensive care unit because of the toxicity of the drug at a fever of 108 degrees, which usually is not compatible with being alive. but Somehow I survived that. So I had to stop the drug. 
and the disease came back almost immediately. 2018, I had my left foot amputated. The disease kind of worked its way up my leg into my shin in 2019, requiring two more surgeries. And then last year, an undiagnosed tumor kind of in my ankle area grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And I also found out I had tumors in my lungs and I'm undergoing treatment for those tumors right now. So that's my really exciting and riveting nine-year battle with cancer. Oh my goodness. Nine years. How are you able to maintain being positive and being a motivational speaker? Because if that was me, I'd be in bed under the covers, just like, let me die. I think most of us might be. I don't know how you probably had that journey of, yeah. In the book you mentioned, you said to your wife, just can I like, let me just die. Yeah. I mean, when I was going through, you know, having the flu every week and it was just, I mean, literally there were times I prayed to die. It's just, please just take me out of this. I don't care. I am so sick of being sick that I just wanted to go. And, but obviously, you know, that decision is way above my pay grade. So I didn't really worry about it too much. But yes, I've certainly had those days. And I think I was in a lot of ways lucky. You know, I started playing team sports. I started playing basketball when I was nine years old. And I played all the way up through college till I, I graduated, till I was 21. And I think one of the things that team sports taught me was the importance of being part of something bigger than yourself. And on a team, if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. And I am on a clinical trial now for these tumors in my lungs, and it's most likely not going to save my life. It's not going to cure me. But it may help the doctors, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, after I'm no longer here, to synthesize a drug that saves someone else's life. And if that's the case, then one, that's being part of something bigger than yourself. And two, to me, that gives my life a whole lot more, a greater meaning, even though I won't be here. You did something that's going to help somebody else that you're never going to know it's never going to be able to, to even thank you, not alone repay you for what you went through to get to that point. So I look at it like this is just something that's bigger than me. And because of that, it's a whole lot easier for me to stay positive. Mm. You did say something in the book about how we have like a purpose here and we're not done until our purpose is kind of fulfilled. I don't I can't remember exactly how you put that. Oh, you know what? I have that quote here. Well, this is sort of similar, but you said, we all have a reason as to why we were born. There is no one else, nor will there ever be anyone else with the unique gifts and talents we possess. And I think that that also helps to know that what you're going through has a purpose, what you're going through and dealing with can help others and who you are is unique and who I am is unique. And that can so encourage us as we're dealing with things, right? And do you find that people will say to you, I don't know what my purpose is and I don't believe that I'm I'm unique. I don't believe that I have any purpose. Do you get that from a lot of people? 
I do. As a matter of fact, that was one of the, I guess, impetuses of the book. I had a one of my former players had moved to Colorado where my wife and I live and and we had had dinner with her and her fiance. And I said something to her like, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. She kind of looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, (laughs) but that's what your life should be about. You know, we're not all born with the same gifts and talents, but we all have the ability to become the best person that we're capable of becoming. And so I told her, I said, you know, you need to spend your life finding the reason that you were put here. And then once you find that, that reason to live it. And I think a lot of times, I guess I need to qualify this. You know, a lot of times we think of our purpose, it's got to be our job. You know, it's got to be what we do for a living. It doesn't. You could have a job over here that you do every day to pay the bills, but your purpose is to write or to paint or to, you know, volunteer or whatever it is that you feel in your heart that you should do. And and I always tell young people, especially, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you should do and it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. Do the things that make you uncomfortable in order to grow. Yeah. I mean, I always tell people that it's every day we all should do one thing that makes us scared, that makes us uncomfortable, that you know could potentially be embarrassing for us. Because if you do that every day and you do it in a, it doesn't have to be a big deal, whatever. I mean, you're, you're scared to be on a podcast because you, you don't like the way your voice sounds or you don't like to talk. Well, do that. Get on that podcast and talk. Because if you do that at the end of the podcast, okay, I feel better about myself. I did something that made me uncomfortable. And so when these big things occur in our lives, whether it's, a, it's an illness or you, know, you have to take care of your mom and dad as they age or you have a death of somebody, whatever it is, when you do the, all these small things and you have these small successes, when the big stuff hits, you're going to be able to handle that because you know, you're going to have that confidence that, hey, I did something uncomfortable every day. And now this is just another uncomfortable thing. It's a little bit bigger than what I'm normally used to, but I know I can handle this as well. I think also when you start something uncomfortable, when I first started doing podcasts and being on podcasts, I was so nervous. I'm like, because I also had anxiety that I'm now being able to manage better, but I was like, I don't know what to say and blah, blah, blah. But then when you do them more, you get better. But it starts with that first uncomfortable thing. (laughs) <laughs> it does. And I did the same thing. I mean, I had all these notes in front of me on the computer. You know, I, I had all this kind of stuff. I mean, I remember my first podcast, I was just getting over the flu and I really wasn't over it. But I feel bad when I schedule something with somebody and I have to cancel, which I've had to do a couple of times because of some of my health issues. But I feel horrible about that because I feel like we all only have a certain amount of time on this road. So I don't want to waste people's time. I want to try to be good guests. I want to try to be on time and all the things that you know I was taught growing up. But I hate wasting people's time. So when you get on to something, but I was, I was like, I was so nervous and I was so sick. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I still have it. And it's like, oh my God, I was terrible. <laughs> now, 200 plus podcasts later, yeah, I'm a little bit better at it than I was you know, when I started. And you're so comfortable in front of the mic and talking with people like 
you put people at ease too. So I think that that helps the podcaster because sometimes there can be guests where you just feel like, oh, what am I doing? I have to really lead the conversation. <laughs> it can be hard. Oh, there. Are, I mean, I've had a couple podcasts that I've been on where the, the host has been so nervous that, I mean, we had a talk just, you know, about things, anything, what's going on in the news, sports, weather, whatever, for like half an hour before he or she could get comfortable enough to actually start the podcast. And I'm like, what are you nervous about? It's like, well, I'm interviewing you. I'm just much of a knucklehead as everybody else out there. I don't know what's any special about me. So I wouldn't be too excited about it. Let's just talk and see what happens. Well, you know what I did? Do you know Randy Spelling? No. Aaron Spelling? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. His son, Randy, he was my life coach. And so I worked with him for six months and I had him on my podcast. We did an episode on boundaries last season. And I was so dorky and nervous. And I, he goes, why are you nervous? I'm like, I don't know, because I'm, I'm very much aware that I'm recording with you and that people are going to listen. I think that's, yeah. I don't know. It was weird though, because he's very easy to talk to and I already kind of knew him. So, yeah. but yeah, it's funny how that works, right? It is. Somebody has a name or has a position or something like that. And, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm scared to talk to them. I, I'll, I'll never forget when I was at Wendy's, I was a marketing trainee. That's how low on the totem pole. I was, but I don't know if you know who Ted Turner is. Yes, he dated. Wasn't he married to Jane Fonda? Yes, married to Jane Fonda, was a, a big individual and, and started Turner Network Television, CNN, owned the Atlanta Braves and all that stuff. Well, he came to the corporate office of Wendy's when I was with there. And I, I was, he was walking around. Everybody's like, oh, he's going to buy Wendy's. You know, I mean, that's how much money the guy had. And he was standing in the lobby waiting for his driver to pick him up. And I, you know, I was like, should I go sit? Now I graduated from college with his son. I didn't really know his son very well, but I graduated from college with him. And so I went up to him and, you know, and it was like, hi, Mr. Turner, I'm Terry Turner. And the guy spent like 20 minutes just talking to me like it was no big deal. Like you're just, you're a marketing trainee, get away from me. You know, I only deal with like presidents and CEOs. It's like, no. And that just kind of made me feel like you can talk to anybody. And I'm sure people like just to be Hi, I know you're Ted Turner. Can, can we just talk for a few minutes? I graduated from college with your son. So anyway, it was a great experience for me. That's amazing. And it sounds like he was very down to earth, which is, I like to hear that. Yeah. And when I, cause I used to be in such awe of celebrities, but then when you, and my mom used to say, they just put their pants on one at a time, one leg at a time, like we do. And they're just humans too. <laughs> But we forget that. <laughs> they are. And half of them are dumb as a box of rock. When you realize that, it's kind of like, okay, why am I intimidated by this person just because they have a name or they were on television or they were on? I would rather somebody who, like you, is making a difference in the world as opposed to somebody who can, I'm a talking head. I just recite things and, and that's like, okay, that's great. But they don't really get me all excited anymore. I, maybe that's just because I'm getting old. So. It could be because I feel the same now. I'm like, meh, celebrities aren't, to me, it's different. I don't revere them like I used to. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't watch a lot of television. I don't watch a lot. Of, I like to read. And so that's kind of how I spend my time. And I will watch certain sporting events and things like that. But yeah, it's just, you know, people like, oh, you know, so-and-so. I'm like, no, who is that? You know, my 25-year-old daughter, well, this person, you know, starred in this and they were, you know, I'm like, well, no, sorry. I don't know who that is. <laughs> Oh, my best friend, she was saying, she was asking me if I watched this one movie. And if I said, uh, not really, I don't watch as many movies as I, I used to go to movie theater all the time. And I'm like, meh. And she goes, 
but you're the one I go to with my questions. I was like, sorry, not anymore. You'll have to Google it. (laughs) Yeah, because we can believe everything that's on Google, right? (laughs) Yes. I wanted to go back what you were saying about the uncomfortableness. And I think this is how my generation and the generation after me, our parents were always trying to shelter us from being hurt, from having pain. And I, I look at my childhood, like I was bullied for being the fat kid in school. And I would come home crying every day. And yeah, it was really hard. And I took it really like it was awful for me. But now I look back and I'm like, hey, it's my story. And I can use that to my advantage now. And it's, but still all the things that our parents tried to like, oh, you can't say that they're, they lost this competition. Like I think in the, in the eighties and nineties, the millennials had a whole lot of give them the trophies for everybody because they were trying to minimize their uncomfortableness. And It's really important what you said. It's true because if we're not used to being uncomfortable and having losses in life, then when we get further along in life and things are harder, we're not going to be able to handle that. Yeah, that's true. And the world owes you nothing. And I I remember, you know, I I have a 25-year-old daughter, almost 26, and she's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. And I remember times she got my height. You can't tell us from looking at me, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And that's why I played basketball in college. She got my height and she decided to go to the Air Force Academy. They wanted her to come and play there. So she did. And she lasted all of about 10 minutes and blew her knee out. And that was the end of her career. But at least she got an opportunity to go and had a great education. And I remember when she made that decision I was like, okay, you're going to have to call these other coaches that have been interested in you to come and play for them and tell them you've made your decision and you're not going to go there. And she's like, well, I'll just send them a text. I'm like, no, no, you won't. No, this is about developing relationships. So they've been cultivating a relationship with you. You're going to call. Well, she didn't really honestly know how to do that. I don't know what to say. So we role played a little bit and then we made her call. And it was interesting because she'd get off a call and she'd be like, you know, dad, that coach yelled at me. I'm like, yeah. And it's not a good school in terms of basketball or academics as the one you're going to. And they're yelling at you because you're doing something better. What does that tell you? I don't know. What do you think that tells me? So that tells you that they don't really care about you, that they just wanted to use you to further their basketball career, you know, whether it was to go on to another job coaching or maintain their job where they were, said, so you want to be around people that support you, that lift you up, that are willing to be honest with you. And I think that last one's real important because, you know, we'll take people around us. You know, Stephanie, if I didn't know who you were, I never met you, but I knew the five people you hung around with the most, I could probably tell you almost everything about you in terms of what kind of person you were. So, you know, if you're hanging around people that, you know, are or belittling you and bullying you and doing all that kind of stuff, I tell you to get rid of those people. Get those people out of your life and put people in your life that are willing to tell you the truth. Here's the problem with that. You know, when somebody says, hey, Terry, you're really messing up. You shouldn't do that. What do we do? It's like, well, that guy's not my friend anymore. I mean, I don't want to listen to him. No, you have to be willing to have those people in your life that are willing to tell you things you don't want to hear, but are in your best interest. And, you know, when I was... Uh, young. I was 13 years old. I was six foot five. I had a size 14 shoe and my head had not caught up with my ears. So I kind of looked like Dumbo. 
You think I got teased? I absolutely got teased, got teased mercilessly. But what I did is I put that, I guess, pain into basketball. And, you know, as a result, I was able to get a scholarship to college. And we're all going to experience pain in our life. Pain is inevitable. And it doesn't have to be cancer pain or a chronic illness. It could be you flunk a test at school or break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or not get the promotion at work that you think you deserve. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, suffering's optional. Suffering's what you do with that pain. Do you use that pain to make you a stronger and better and more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and want to feel sorry for yourself and want people to feel sorry for you? It kind of goes back to what we were talking earlier about. Life is all about choices. You have a choice as to whether or not you want to use your pain to make you a better person or whether you want people to feel sorry for you. I just choose to use it to make me a better person. And you're looking at me right now. There's no S on my chest. There's no cape that I'm wearing. I have bad days. I'm a human being. I cry. I get down. I feel sorry for myself. I just don't let myself stay there. And again, that's about making a choice. Do you find that the more you do it, you'll have less instances? Like if I know for me, if I was having something that was really hard for me, it would take me like weeks to get over it. And then as I get more used to not not really getting over it, but being able to handle it better and growing, the time it takes is actually less. Like I spend less time crying. I spend less time when I can, instead of a few weeks, it might be a few days. Do you find that that that's how it goes? Or depending on the thing, maybe? I haven't. I find when I have those low points, it's usually sort of an extension of the physical pain that I'm going through because the drug that I'm taking now, a couple hours after they give it to me, I, I shake violently. I throw up. I have a headache. I have a feet. I mean, it's, it's just ugly. And it's the only way to describe it. But I, I remember two quick stories that, that when I get into that place, I remember these two stories. And the first one happened back in the 1950s. And it was a professor at Johns Hopkins University here in the United States, did an experiment with rats. And he took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the rats could tread water before they would sink and drown. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And right as they were ready to sink, he reached in and grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, let them rest for a while, and then put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats treaded water on average for 60 hours. Think about that. First time, 15 minutes. That's all I can do. I can't do it. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm going to sink. I'm going to drown. Second time, 60 hours, which says to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. We have to believe that life is going to get better or that we're working towards something that's better for us. And the second thing is just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. If you think about these rats, they figured they'd be rescued. They were rescued the first time. So you know what? I'll keep going. Well, 60 hours versus 15 minutes. When I read that, I'm like, no, that's got to be made up. But I did some research on it. And I'm like, well, no, that appears to be a true story. And the Navy SEALs, who are a group of the military here in the United States, some of the toughest men in the world kind of have a story that dovetails with that, that they call their 40% rule. And basically what that says is if you're at the end of your rope, you can't go on. For them, it's you can't run another mile, you can't swim another lap, you can't do another push-up. 
you're only at 40% of your maximum and you still have 60% left to give to yourself. So whenever I get into those down and dark places, I always remember those two stories. It's like, no, yeah, you're feeling down. No, no, no. You got so much more left to give to yourself. So for your audience, when you get into those places, realize you have so much more. You have so much more left to reserve when you think you're done. Have you ever seen the movie Unbroken or read the book? But Louis Zambrini? Louis Zambrini, yeah. Zambrini, yeah, yeah, I have both. Read the book and seen the movie. Me too. I was obsessed with him. And when he and the other, oh my gosh, what were their names? Mac was the other guy. And I can't remember the third guy. When, when their plane went down and they were on the raft and Mac died. And wow, what was the third guy's name? I can't remember. Anyway, and Louis and the other guy, they were... They survived on that raft for what, like 40 days or 60 days or something amazing. And they kept going and he was so stubborn. He's like, I'm not going to let them win. And I'm thinking, because I know me, at least the me that I've always been, and I would have probably died too, right? Yeah. But the me now, I'm like, hey, maybe I would, I would stick that out longer. Maybe I would be the one who's stubborn. You don't know until you would, you don't really know how you would react in those situations, but that movie just got me. Like every time I watch it, I cry. <laughs> right. It's a great movie. And I've had certainly not nearly what those guys went through, but I've had people come up to me and they're like, Tara, I could never do what you did. I could never go through what you've gone through. And I usually, and I, I shouldn't do this, but I usually come back with something smart alecky, like, yeah, you're right. Because you've already decided you're not going to do it. You already decided you couldn't be successful at it. And why would you start something? going into it with the attitude that I'm not going to be successful. I could never do that. My advice to you would be don't start it. I mean, because you just frustrate yourself if you've got the mindset, I will not be successful. I could never do that. You don't know what you can do until you're put in in that situation. So it always bothers me when people come up to me and tell me, you know, I could never do what you could. Well, you know what? I never thought I could do this either. But nine years, almost 10 years into this, I'm still here. And I'm still doing it. So like I said, I'm the biggest wimp in the world. So if I can do it, pretty much I think anybody can do it. Sure. (laughs) Ask away. All right. I got a question for you. And this is a little bit controversial. (laughs) But with people dealing with mental health issues, and I'm in some of these groups online, and they talk about the trauma, even from dealing with life coaches and the personal development world that says, and I felt this myself, like, get up and do this and do this hard. And blah, blah, blah. and then if you, can't, if you have a hard time doing that, you feel like a failure. And But there's also a part where if people have gone through trauma and they're dealing with PTSD or they have depression and stuff mentally and the amount of like mental health stuff that we're dealing with now, if, when people, you know, at work, they work you so hard. I had this situation. They work you so hard. They were like, I literally can't do that. So when people say you can do it, but you haven't healed from the things that are affecting you. Like, how does that, how does that work? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, have you heard this from people too? Yeah, I am not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I mean, when I was a hostage negotiator, that's probably the closest I've come to have to deal with people that were in crisis and things like that. And I mean, we, we did work with a psychologist and things like that. I'm not talking about people that, that need to be medicated and and that have experienced tremendous trauma. I think I'm talking more to the person who's, yeah, I don't really want to go to work today. 
so I'm just going to lay here in bed and stuff like that. I mean, people that have had have had trauma and PTSD and and all that kind of stuff. I've never experienced those kind of things. So I don't mean to be an expert, and I don't mean to tell you you should just get up and get it done. That I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think you need to do whatever your healthcare professional, your psychologist, whatever, whoever you're talking with and dealing with. That's what you need to do. But I guess what I'm saying is. There's an old quote from Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain, you know, during World War II said, you know, when you're going through hell, keep going. And I think most people would look at my nine year battle with cancer and say, yeah, you've pretty much been through hell. Yeah. And I think we just need to keep going. And and believe me, there were days when I was experiencing the flu, you know, the side effects of the interferon where I was always about winning the day. I've got to win the day. And sometimes winning the day was getting out of bed and making it to the couch. And I always kind of talk about, let's just take sales. You're a salesman and you want to do better. I want to be a better salesman. Well, that's a pretty big and lofty goal. And so what I always tell people is kind of break it down. Instead of saying, I want to be a better salesman, say this, every day I'm going to get 1% better at sales. Now, I can live with that. I can understand that. I can do something that will get me better at sales 1% every day. At the end of a month, you're 30% better at sales than you were when you started. At the end of two months, you're 60% better. But if you look at it at the big umbrella, it's, you know, it's kind of the old joke about how to eat the elephant, you know, one bite at a time. In all honesty, that's, that's really, you know, we try to, we have this grandiose goal or something that we need to do, but it's so huge. The only way we can do that is to break it down into something that we can handle, kind of bite-sized chunks, so to speak. And that's why I say, you know, I'm going to be a better basketball player. Well, what if you got 1% better at basketball every day? Then at the end of 30 days, you're 30% better than when you started. And I think that's a lot more manageable for most of us. Again, I'm not talking about people that are PTSD, have been traumatized, have been raped or whatever. Those people have unique problems and they need to deal with their they're psychologists and stuff. But what I'm saying is you can do a whole lot more than you think you can do. Right. I think that's important to differentiate because I know in the personal development world, I've been to some of those conferences and read those books and I felt like a failure because I was like, I can't do all these, this huge thing that they're saying you should do. And then when you start to realize, take it a little bit at a time. And I wrote a huge list of all this all these things I wanted to do the other day. And I got maybe two of them done. I was like, oh man. But how I was feeling that day, I was just like, I don't have the, because I also saw, I also have like seasonal affective disorder. And sometimes I forget how, to, <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm not managing it well because I don't feel it until I feel it. And then like, oh shoot, <laughs> I should have got my little sunlight thingy out earlier. But anyway, so it's like, okay, but I did those two things. And I shared this meme the other day. It was like, somebody's like, I got a promotion. I got married. And the last person's like, I got out of bed. And I think that's an important thing to to realize. Like, yes, just keep going. And even if you take a small step, when you see people, other people taking bigger steps, that's okay. Because as long as you keep going. Yeah. As long as you're moving forward, you know, it goes back to the old Shawshank Redemption movie of get busy living or get busy dying. I mean, get busy living is just taking a step forward every day. It doesn't have to be a big step. It could be a very tiny step. And that's okay. And again, the only person who can make you feel like a failure is you. 
I mean, if you don't, it's like, yeah, I did something today. I did something productive. I did something positive. Well, if you feel like a failure, that's your problem. I mean, that's you saying, I feel like a failure. It's, I mean, I'd probably take you off the air if I told you all the things I've been called as a police officer in terms of <laughs> names. But those only hurt if you take them inside, if you internalize them and say, I care that Stephanie called me a blah, 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 blah. Again, going back to who are you surrounding yourself with? What kind of people do you have around you? And if Stephanie's calling me all these names that's, that's not productive, that's not being you know, good for me, I don't want Stephanie in my life. And again, you can't make people be part of your life. You, oh, Stephanie's the cool one. So I want, I want to be in with Stephanie and stuff like that. Okay, that's great. But if Stephanie's not the kind of person that is lifting you up and making you a better person, why would you want Stephanie in your life? Exactly. And again, that is your choice as well. You know, you have a choice of the people you want to surround yourself with. I want to be that, that guy who is the number one salesperson in my company. Do you? What do you know about that guy? I mean, we're all going through things. You know, I mean, he may have a horrible marriage and his kids may hate him. And I mean, my wife has been in the financial services industry for 40 some years, was had a kind of a mentor, a guy who was a big deal in one of the power brokers on Wall Street. And this guy had multiple houses, you know, in Greenwich, Connecticut, and New York, and all kinds of places. And his kids didn't like him. And they only came to him when, you know, they needed money. He got divorced from his wife and he ended up taking his own life. And you're like, you know, he would be a guy that you would look at and say, he had everything, didn't he? I mean, he had all the material things that we all talk about as being successful. If I'm successful, I have all this. I have multiple homes. I have more money than I'll ever need. And I have, you know, I can walk into a BMW place and say, I want that car. I'll pay cash for it. He had all that. But he ended up having such a miserable life that he ended up taking his life. And I remember there's a story about Alexander the Great, probably the greatest conqueror, probably also the greatest murderer of people in the world. I mean, everybody talks about Hitler. I think Alexander the Great was worse than Hitler. And there's a story, and I don't believe it's a true story, but it kind of illustrates what we're talking about. When he was dying, he called his counselors together and he said, you look, I want you to carry out my final three wishes. My first wish is I only want my doctors to carry my, my coffin to the grave. The second wish is that I want the road to the cemetery paved with gold and silver and precious stones. And the third wish is I want my hands hanging out of my coffin. And one of his counselors was like, I mean, you're Alexander the Great. You could have any wishes you want. Why these three wishes? He said, well, number one, I want my doctors to carry my coffin to the grave because I want people to realize that no doctor ever cures anything. All they do is help the body to cure itself. So be cognizant of the decisions you make in terms of what you eat, what you drink, exercise, smoking, all that kind of stuff. So that's the first one. The second one, I want my, the road to be paved with gold and silver and precious stones. I've spent my entire life acquiring wealth and power and prestige, and yet none of that is coming with me beyond the grave. I want people to realize that it's just sheer folly to chase that stuff. And then number three, he said, I want people to realize that I came into this world empty-handed, and I'm pretty much leaving it the exact same way. I just think that's kind of a good story when we talk about what's really important in life. Wow. Yeah, I think when you put it into that kind of perspective, it's definitely helpful because sometimes we can very easily, not sometimes, a lot of the time, (laughs) compare ourselves. I do that all the time with people. I'm like, oh, so-and-so has this and I don't have that. And 
you know, and then I can get down and then I realize, wait, that's why I have, I have gratitude tattooed on my wrist as a reminder to be grateful for the things that I have. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I know people who have a lot of things and they're miserable. And so, and I know there's one family member who I have is like, he pretty much thinks I'm a failure uh, because I can't, <laughs> I didn't finish my school. Like I kept, you know, I didn't finish my BA. I didn't finish my other BA. Like I just trying to seek out things that I like to do and I just figuring things out. And yet he's not, he's not a happy person and he might have a prestigious job, but I'm like, you're not, I don't see him as successful. So even though I would like what he has, but I don't really want what he has. And so, yeah. Yeah, we, that's, I think, a big problem. We compare ourselves to other people. <laughs> it's like so-and-so has this and I don't have that. Well, I believe that's the ninth commandment, that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's goods. If you want something, that's fine. It's okay to want something, but it's not okay to want something because somebody else has it. And I think that's kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, splitting hairs, but that's the difference. Again, you are you. You are unique to you. Why do you want to try to be like somebody else? Why not be the best person you're capable of becoming? Because the way I look at it, at the end of your life, you know what? God's not judging me on what somebody else has or what somebody else did or what somebody else said. God's judging me based on what I said and what I did in life. So who cares what other people have? But you're right. I mean, I think we've all done it. I know I've done it. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a great looking car. I'd like that. You know, it's like, yeah. Do you really want that car? Or do you want it because so-and-so has it? And I, I find it get because when you force yourself to stop while you're going through that coveting and then you you change your thoughts around like, no, I'm grateful for what I have. I'm doing this and I am me. And I remember when I was younger and I used to look at other people, I was obsessed like, oh, because I hated myself. So I would look at other girls and be like, I want to be like them. Why can't I just have their life? And now I'm no, because I wouldn't want their life because I have my life. And so can take a lot for us to to get to that place more maybe longer than other people but it's such a nicer place to be when you're able to stop wanting to be somebody else and it's not a race i mean if if you get there eventually who cares if you get there 10 years after that person who cares you know they got there here you got there. it's not a race i mean you're not racing your neighbor to say i need a bigger house or a bigger car or a bigger bank account it's not a race. I mean, as long as your basic needs are met, do we really need all this stuff? I mean, we really don't. It doesn't make anybody happier. People see there's, you know, more issues of mental health, you know, problems and, and all that kind of stuff. It's like, is that really making you happier? No, do what you want to do. You know, again, it goes back to, I think that first question you asked me about finding your purpose. What were you put on this work on this planet to do? And I said to my player when she asked me that, I'm like, just search for it with an open heart. Just be open to the things that come around. Well, how will I know? Like, well, if you can't get up, if you can't wait to get up in the morning and go do whatever you think your purpose is, that's probably your purpose as opposed to, oh gosh, I got to go whatever. Yeah, it's probably not your purpose. Your purpose will energize you. It will make you happier. And again, it doesn't have anything to do with money or power, prestige or anything like that. Yep. And I found that like, yeah, in the morning, if I have things that excite me and give me energy and I'm like, oh, I get to do this today. I'm like, okay, that's my motivation to get up. And when I was working at the the job that 
really stress me out so much. I remember trying because they would say, wake up on the good side of the bed and have good thoughts about it. But I was in such a bad place because they worked us so hard. I just couldn't, you know, I'd wake up like, oh God, I can't do it. You know, and so that was not, and I think it's hard also when you have a job that's so draining that, and it's nicer for people to find a work that is your purpose. I'm always so jealous of those people. And that's my goal is to find things that I can get paid for that I also just find is my purpose. Because I think a lot of us are just, we just have jobs just because we have to have a job. But those jobs, a lot of times can just really, you know, they take a lot of our energy and it's just, especially if it's not the right fit for you, it's even that much more difficult to get through, right? It is. And I I have a a nephew who, you know, was asking me about, you know, getting out of college and it was like, you know, what about this job? You know, I'll be making this amount of money or that amount of money. And I'm like, never take a job for money. Everything I've ever read says, you know, your financial remuneration on a job comes down around nine or 10 in terms of important. Do these people respect you? Do, is there room for growth? You know, are you able to contribute? All those things are much more important to people than money is. So, if, I mean, if you're just being worked like a dog, but, you know, it's just boom, boom, boom. Yeah, people are like, yeah, that's not, I'm not part of the solution. I'm just one of the worker bees that's kind of doing its thing. And I wouldn't want to be part of that organization either. And that's easy for me to say. I realize, you know, jobs are kind of, I mean, I know there's a lot of jobs out there, but why are all these people quitting their jobs? Because I don't think they're fulfilled that. And the big corporations, and I've been through enough of this, they work you so hard, you know, they cut other jobs and they're like, okay, well, instead of hiring more people, we're going to add it to you and we're going to do this because they make the money and they don't care about you. And so that's why I think we're seeing so many people resigning and quitting and like the Starbucks employees, you know, when they have this huge, massive thing to do because I felt bad for them when they had, because they have the drive-through, they have the people walking in. And then years ago, they started when you can pre-order it on the app. And I've seen them. I've stood there and waited for drinks. And I've seen how hard these people work. And I'm like, this is not fair of the company to put it on them because now you're giving them more customers to deal with while they also have these customers that they can't even. And because it's all about money and what they can do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and you and I both know life's not fair. No, I love hearing these quitting stories. I think they're great. (laughs) There was one I heard the other day where this person like on the, I think it was at Target or something or Walmart and they, they did it on the, what's that thing called? The speaker. Oh, the PA system, like, or the store intercom? The PA system, and they quit. Yeah, my favorite. (laughs) Oh, boy. Anyways, so what's your, um, can you plug your book and your website and your podcast and everything? You have a podcast? You have your own podcast. I don't have a podcast. I'm busy being a guest on other people's podcasts. I thought on your website it says, it said at the top, you have a podcast. Or was that just other podcasts you were on, I guess? That's just other podcasts that I've been a guest on. And uh, so, yeah, I... You know, people have said that to me, you know, you should, you should have your own podcast. I'm like, I'm like, I could turn my cell phone on in the morning. So, you know, having a podcast, <laughs> I mean, what I have a blog that every day I put up a quote for the day. And with it comes the question to kind of get you to think about that quote and how it might apply to your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message, which is 
usually a video or a story, but they're all short. I realize people's time is at a premium. So if you need a, a quick hit of motivation or inspiration, the website is Motivational Check. So it's, it's motivationalcheck.com. You can get to my social media sites there. You can leave me a message. You can get access to my book. Sustainable Excellence is pretty much available wherever you can get a book online. You get it at Amazon, you get it at barnesandnoble.com, Apple iBooks. Pretty much if you just search for the title, you'll find it someplace that I have never even heard of that you know <laughs> is offering at a discount and stuff like that. So it makes a great Christmas present. Yes. And it's an excellent, excellent book. Helpful for people. No matter what you're going through life, it's helpful. It's encouraging. And yeah. And you you have your own stories in there of what you went through and I do. And I, you know, and that's somebody asked me about that. It's like, it's not made up stories. You know, the stories are actually real. I mean, the people are actually real. And, and that's, I wrote the book in kind of that three month window after I had my leg amputated and before I started the chemo for the tumors in my lungs. And it's all either real people or real stories and how those stories or people impacted the, each chapter is, is a principle. So it applies to that principle. So they are real. They're not just made up stories that, that illustrate it. So, you know, these are real people that walked on the face of the earth and, and did these magnificent things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Terry. This was fun chatting with you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Terry Tucker, everybody. I want to give a big shout out and thank you to my amazing editor, German, at Your Podcast Editor. You can check him out on Instagram and Twitter. He edits the audio conversations I have with my guests, and he does such an amazing job. And he is such a nice person, very encouraging. So check him out at Your Podcast Editor. If you want to help support the podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review as it helps other people to find the podcast and listen as well. There is also Financially, if you want to help support the podcast, you can check out buymeacoffee.com backslash stuff a podcast. Come follow me on the socials on Twitter at Steph underscore Ann underscore web on Instagram, Stephanie underscore Ann underscore web. And you can check out my website, www.stephanieandweb.com, where you can check out the podcast, my blog, and I also have a link on there to buy my children's book, What Should Dragon Do? The main character in the book is called Dragon, and her adventure is living with her two bear roommates. The book consists of three little stories of different circumstances, living with people, and how the tiny things can drive us crazy, and our emotions, and how we react can affect others. I appreciate you. I thank you so much for listening. Now go out there and make it a great day. Bye!